I'd like to talk to you tonight about the importance of equanimity in action. When I was at, uh, again, Reed College, and I was studying physics, some friends of mine, uh, actually a very dear friend of mine, um, had done a lot of work with the, um, the anti-nuclear movement. And he was going down to do this uh, 10-day massive protest in the Nevada nuclear test site. And after talking with him, I realized that I was in the field of physics, and it, uh, it touched something in me that uh, physicists had created this uh, nuclear bomb capacity. And I knew that story. I knew what the uh, physicists at the time had to say about that, differing opinions. But I was moved to join him on that, and thinking about the possibility of nuclear war and... Um, it's not such a pressing issue on us these days. Uh, the young people I work with today, it's not in their mind that much, but growing up in the 70s and the 80s, and definitely before that, nuclear war was a possibility. And I think we've come close to it a few times. So I went down there, and it was a nonviolent protest, and so I had to get trained in how to be nonviolent. And that was an interesting philosophy. But being young, I found myself very impassioned on the issue. And one time, <clears throat> I was down by this opening where most of the protests would happen. There was a main gate into the Nevada nuclear test site. And it's where most people would go to symbolically get arrested, make a statement, and then cross over this one cattle guard, be arrested, uh, taken away on a bus, processed and released, the catch and release system. <laughs> And this one protest, <clears throat> we were trying to get so many people going there that they couldn't process us all, and somehow that was going to make a bigger impact uh, and get noticed. So 5,000 people got arrested, and it wasn't noticed because it was in the <laughs> middle of the, uh, the Nevada test site, in the Nevada desert. But <clears throat> that time there has forever changed me. And it changed me because I saw what it was like to actually put your values up front and not espouse them with a good friend over coffee, but what it's like to actually um, walk with your values up front. And even though it's slightly unnerving to do that, it's greatly relieving to do that because you're not in ambiguity, you're not um, holding back. There's a sort of a greatness of being that you can step into when you live inspired by your own uh, uh, your own understanding, your own love, your own compassion, your own wisdom, even if it's not totally clear, you still have the impression, this is important to me. And so I was down at the nuclear test site at the gate, and I saw these, um, these three older women come down, and they were uh, walking hand in hand, and they were sort of smiling. And they kept walking, and they didn't slow down. And as they were walking, they walked right across the gate, no big declaration. They walked across the gate. And I saw the sheriff come over because he saw them coming. And uh, he, he started smiling, and they started smiling. And as they met, I could overhear them saying, Oh, Frank, you're going to arrest us. That's wonderful. How have you been? <laughs> and I, Oh, fine, fine. How are you? How are your kids? Oh, they're very good, and my grandkids are good. And they were chatting, and he put the handcuffs on them and walked them into the pen. And he talked to them at the gate, and then finally closed the gate, and 
they sat and they, I saw them later on in the camp because they had been caught and released. And it turns out that they were from this Quaker uh, camp. There were 5,000 people, many different types of people there, and they were from this Quaker camp. Later that night when I walked by their camp, they had a little fire going. I could hear them singing songs and talking to each other. I was like, God, why are they so happy? (laughs) How can they stay that happy? Because when I tried to do it, <clears throat> I tried to be happy, I tried to be non-judgmental, I tried to be non-violent, and it just did not match my internal circumstances. I was very angry at the guards. They were the type of men that I put myself in counterposition to. Um, the idea of nuclear weapons and they're being built here, and just the, the passions of being there. I couldn't, I couldn't still myself and actually offer friendship to these guards in that way, uh, but I aspired to. And I learned how hard it was in that week to walk my values uh, all the way because I, I also believe in nonviolence. But I believe in an empowered nonviolence. And having seen these older Quaker women do that, I remember thinking to myself, how am I ever going to get there? Because I know my mind now, and it's very reactive. And I see how beautiful their mind is, how beautiful their heart is. And I just don't think I can do that. But I want to, I long to. And it wasn't until my first uh, 10-day meditation retreat, again about four or five days in, when I finally got a break from my thoughts. Not a break that like, they stopped happening, but I stopped being imprisoned by them. I stopped being defined by them. And I could see thoughts were just going by. And if I got in them, they would take me on a ride and they would define me. They'd kind of create a world and I'd be stuck in it. And I could see... Actually, I could just let that thought go. There's still anger. There's still an angry thought going by, but somehow it wasn't sticky. It just passed through, and it wasn't me. And I could see that many of the thoughts I had were not even mine. They were just cultural um, garbage that had stuck inside of me, and I was using it for a reality. Watching too much TV or um, hearing the news, certain opinions, I took them on to be truths, and then I was living by them. And I could see that they were just noise in my mind, and I could actually pick and choose. So uh, certain thoughts that were in alignment with my values, I could see them, and I could follow them with choice. And the ones that weren't, I could let them go. So it was, a, um, it was inspired by those Quaker women, but I didn't have a path until I came to understand this practice. And I thought, this is the practice that's actually going to allow me to live with my values, full front and uncompromised I want to talk about the importance of equanimity in that, the Pali word upekka. Equanimity is actually one of the the few English translation words that I like. I don't find myself struggling over it or tripping over it. So one of the definitions I found on equanimity is mental calm, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. And as Martine said earlier, equanimity provides us with stability and balance. The image I I had given to me once that was very helpful with equanimity and why it is balancing is that if I, um, I used to do some juggling and part of juggling and other types of things was learning how to balance. So walking down a... um, 
uh, well, balancing on a tightrope or juggling or all these kind of performance hard things. And <clears throat> I always saw these people with this long pole and walking on a balance thing. So I tried it once and actually it was really helpful to have this long pole while you're walking down a very uh, precarious um, rope or a, or a path. And someone gave me this metaphor once that equanimity develops as you can balance in the middle between the great range of pleasure and the great range of pain. And if you actually can extend in them in both directions, you can feel fully into pleasure, you can feel fully into pain, and be non-reactive, you can find this balance in between. And that changed my relationship to equanimity because before I was trying to let go and drop my relationship to pain. I was trying to avoid pain and avoid pleasure and see if I could stay somehow in the middle path between the two. I was gonna kind of narrow myself and not fully embrace pleasure, not fully embrace pain, but somehow uh, get there quicker by dropping my relationship to both and being balanced. I found that actually wasn't very balancing. It was, if I was on a meditation retreat with no stimulation, I could do it. But out in daily life, uh, it wasn't possible because there was just too much stimulation. So I had to avoid the world to stay balanced. I had to avoid uh, positive experiences, being in a relationship and enjoying friendships, enjoying good food. It's all too complicated because I would get stuck there. And then try to avoid painful situations, not being attached, be preemptively um, disinterested to someplace that might cause me pain, try to avoid those. And then seek my meditation and try to be like I was a yogi on retreat in life, just kind of keeping my senses to myself and keeping to myself. And it actually was not, um, it wasn't a very stable relationship to life. I just had to hide a lot in doing that. So when someone told me about how equanimity might take a while to develop, but when it does develop, it develops through the actual experience of pain, through the conscious experience of pleasure, and in knowing them both, finding a balance between the two. And you might look at the Buddha's life like that, that he knew the full range of pleasure that was possible and saw that it didn't go anywhere, uh, didn't lead to the type of happiness that he was looking for. And then he experienced great pain and got to see that um, extreme. And then let go of both and found the middle. I think it actually takes some exposure to that. You actually have to take the ride of life and feel pleasure and open up to it and feel pain, open up to it. And then by knowing both, you come to a very natural balance. On the way, you can practice what midpoints are like, but I feel like the practice of equanimity actually deepens when you're able to experience fully the full range on both sides. Whatever life is offering you, I don't think you need to seek out pain. And we're already spending a lot of time seeking out pleasure, but you can experience it without fear that you're a bad Buddhist. (laughs) I'm not sure if any of you have that that hang-up, but I did for a while. somehow I got this notion that if I was experiencing a lot of pleasure in pursuing it, there was some Buddhist shame in that. So if, that's ever, if that message got across, I'd like to pull that one back. 
Equanimity, um, what it what it offers in there, there it comes up. The practice of equanimity, the the factor of equanimity, comes up in a few places that um, are very important in the development of your own uh, awakened heart and mind. Equanimity is one of the four Brahma Viharas. Equanimity is the flavor of very, very deep concentrated states, the jhanas. As you go deeper and deeper and deeper, there actually isn't more joy and bliss. It's actually uh, a much more equanimous state to develop the deep jhanas. The taste of the deep jhanas are equanimity. And it's also in one of the seven factors of enlightenment in equanimity. So I'd like to talk about how equanimity <clears throat> comes about in these practices and uh, just to kind of get a feel for it and then how that can be used for developing wisdom and then how from the combination of equanimity and wisdom you can move forward into action. So in the, in the Vasudhi Magga, which was um, compiled uh, maybe a thousand years after the Buddha died, they developed, they put a lot of effort into um, extrapolating on the Buddha's teachings. And so some people say this is what the Buddha actually taught, and some people say no, it, this is what happens a thousand years later. But it, it, these are interesting practices. So practicing the Brahma Viharas, you have four of them. And I'm sorry that I'm going to go through these too quick. I hope it isn't disorienting. But you have the loving kindness that we practice, that's one of the Brahma Viharas. You have compassion, which is the second Brahma Vihara. You have this appreciative joy, which is the third, the joy in your and other people's um, successes. And then the fourth, you have equanimity. The interesting thing about equanimity in this uh, in this four category is that equanimity is sort of like the opposable thumb. The first three lean in a certain direction, and equanimity tends to be the counterbalance in, in many of them. So the first three still have a frame that we want good things to happen, which is not a bad, a, a bad urge, a bad orientation. I still want good things to happen to you. I feel a sort of sorrow, a wise sorrow when unpleasant things have happened to you. And I'm really happy when you're happy. So it's still oriented towards positive experiences and, I, and wanting that for yourself and others. Equanimity deepens as you sink into the truth of things. And not the philosophical truth of things, but just this is how things are. So the deeper your ability to come in contact with the reality of what you're experiencing, the more you can develop uh, equanimity. So it's not leaning towards or preferring what's good, what's pleasant, what's uh, healthy. It's able to lean into whatever's arising. So for that, <clears throat> the equanimity as a Brahma Vihara, as a divine abode, as a, a beautiful state of mind, or quality of mind that can arise in many states. Because it's not preferring things to be one way or the other, 
because it actually comes in and begins to love things just as they are, you can see things very clearly because you don't have this underlying struggle rejecting certain things, looking for others, appreciating certain things. You can settle in and see things just as they are, whatever they are. And so momentarily you're suspending your preferences for pleasure. You're suspending your uh, retractions from what's unpleasant. You're suspending your wish that the world were different. And you're allowing a very clean, open, honest connection to the way things are. Suspending reactivity and apathy, a type of tuning out from the world, nor struggling. So if I wanted to get to know you better, I might come in on a tone of loving kindness and offer myself as friendship, and that's very upbeat. But I can also come in and just open up and not come in trying to make a positive connection, but just what is true? Who are you? What can I learn from you? And not be so evaluative of what's uh, positive and what's great and what's you know, dark and maybe shameful, but just open up to the whole of you without reactivity. That's what gives uh, equanimity such a power is you get very clean seeing, very clear seeing when there's equanimity. In the categories of the Brahma Viharas, equanimity is the uh, opposite of reactivity. And so if you're experiencing something and there's a reaction against it or a strong reaction for it, you would say that maybe equanimity is sort of low in that moment. So getting overly excited about something or overly uh, rejecting, fearful, irritated, already in that struggle, there is not so much equanimity. So developing that means you have to be able to take things as they are. Equanimity is often confused with apathy. And it's, it's very distinct. When you, can, when you can deepen your equanimity, it tastes nothing like apathy. But as you're deepening it, maybe as you're first learning to suspend your reactivity, it might taste apathetic. It's my love of the world and my wishing things were different that has me be engaged. So if I develop equanimity, then I seem to become a couch potato. I seem to not care. I come into this balanced state and I can see things just as they are and I just don't care. And that's not equanimity. It's a, there's a certain balance in apathy, maybe. I don't find apathy all that balanced. It's sort of, um, it's an unstable det- uh, detachment from the world. Uh, equanimity can be actually quite engaged. Equanimity, um, I'll talk about that later, but just <clears throat> as, a, as a Brahma Vihara, it's falling in love with the truth of who someone is, your true experience of someone. And that's how you develop it. The <clears throat> phrases that are used when you're developing equanimity as a Brahma Vihara, as a 
uh, an aspect of the heart. One of the, it's written in the Vasudhimaga, and beings are the owners of their karma. My wishes for their happiness, uh, their happiness is not dependent upon my wishes. Those are the, the two phrases. So when we pull in karma, the reflection on karma, if I was practicing this Brahma Vihara, if I was practicing it like we practice loving kindness, I would take myself for an example or take one of you for an example or maybe my parents. And I would just reflect that their life is unfolding due to their karma. I don't quite want to get into what karma is in the context of this retreat. But what karma draws upon is a law of cause and effect. So really what you're doing is you're looking at someone saying their life is unfolding due to a chain of causes and effects. And that also is one of those um, openings where you can look at someone and say, yes, this is why they are the way they are. So I am the way I am due to many conditions. And you could call all these karma, not uh, Indian versions of karma, ancient Indian versions of karma, but the laws of cause and effect that have created me. Uh, DNA is very important in how I am. My experiences from conception onward, the environments I found myself in, the parents I had, the schools I went to, the many experiences I had all along have shaped me. So this is me at this age in a stream of many causes and effects rolling forward. So that's the reflection when you're wishing well for someone with loving kindness, for example, you're taking them and like, oh, I wish the best for you. With equanimity practice, you say, it's not my wishes that are going to make much difference for you. It's this law of cause and effect. It's the conditions in your life, how they're ripening and how you're responding to them that will make the biggest difference for you. These four Brahma Viharas play well together. They're a good team. <clears throat> So the other three Brahmaviharas also oppose the thumb of equanimity. So if you are developing this equanimity practice and you get into uh, maybe a very deep state of equanimity and you can see the world just as it is and you can see all the conditions that arise and pass to create great wars or famines, social stress, you can see it all and you're not reactive to it. That is sort of where the Buddha seemed to have been right after his awakening. He could see it all, and he beheld it. And by the legend, it says he went through seven. Uh, he went through seven weeks. Each uh, each week was a different reflection on what he had discovered. And then he came to this uh, choice point: was he going to share this or not? And he just seemed to be in a great state of equanimity. He could see things as they were, didn't think other people could get it, so he wasn't that motivated in that moment to do much with his, um, do much for others, maybe. But then compassion arose in him. So the other Brahmaviharas do inspire us to move forward. They do rewarm our hearts if equanimity has made us too, uh, too detached. 
then having compassion, loving kindness, and this empathetic joy pull us back into the flow of life. And as Upeka develops as a Brahma Vihara, I can feel it even when I'm participating. I can feel the joys, I can feel the sorrows. I'm just not as reactive to them because I'm not overly preferring that everything go well. So one of my family members, as I mentioned earlier, who's um, gotten tangled up in an addiction to heroin, I'm reactive to that because I care for her well-being. And then I'm reactive to it, trying to help her solve this and help my family solve it. Then I get frustrated at the way everybody's behaving and knowing the right things aren't happening. And in this agitation and frustration, I can come into a very tender equanimity, not apathy, equanimity, that this is how things are. These are the people in my family. These are their capacities. This is the situation. And we can't seem to steer it yet in a positive direction. So I surrender a bit out of the reactivity into equanimity to hold the truth as best I can understand it, my understanding of each family member and the chain of events that led us to this situation. So for a moment, I can suspend my reactivity, settle in, and then I rewarm it with compassion. And compassion arises when I see things clearly Compassion arises, and then I can respond to each family member with uh, a clear seeing and a compassion. Whereas before the equanimity was there, there would only be a type of reactivity. I would be overly eager for a positive result, and therefore that would set me up for a type of frustration in with myself and my whole family system. But letting go of that reactivity, settling in, seeing the complexities of things, suspending reactivity for a moment, and then stepping in with compassion. And it's much cleaner the way I interact with people out of that. And then this uh, family member um, who's going through this hard time, she called me out of the blue. And the day before, I was very angry with her because we'd gotten her very close to treatment and she had refused. Then she called me. And I almost went into, uh, how could you do this? But the equanimity arose and said, this is what she did. And it saved me from going into a berating uh, anger of my own frustration around what she was doing. So the equanimity arose, this is, this is what happened. And now she's calling me, oh my God. And then love arose for her. And the love started going, but then I could see, you know, there's still a bigger picture. The equanimity helped me keep the bigger picture. Love arose for her. And I did need to have a conversation with her about how complicated things were. And couldn't she step towards uh, a treatment? So I'm trying to show you how how dynamic uh, this has played out, at least for me, as an example. But it's that non-reactivity that's very important even in these crises, to not get whipped up into um, uh, an, an agitation that maybe compassion would draw you to be ag- agitated, but it's less skillful. And so having some equanimity, some center in you, some grounding, stability and balance, even when things are very difficult 
as it says in the definition, the definition, evenness of temper, even in difficult situations. Then coming into equanimity as it appears in the jhana system, these deep absorbed states. Not so interested in the deep absorbed states um, and whether they're beneficial or not um, in and of themselves. But as you begin to absorb, let's say in the feeling of the breath, you're with the breath, you feel some quieting of the mind. It's kind of a relief because we all know what the spinning mind is like. And then the mind settles and there's sort of a relief. Ah, thank God, just with the breath. The deeper jhanas, as you deepen in, say, with the breath, the mind becomes very absorbed and non-reactive to what you're feeling. So you can see things very clearly. You can feel the beginnings of breaths, the ends of breaths. You can feel your ribs separating sometimes as you breathe. You can really get into the full tactile sensation with the stability of mind that comes with the equanimity factor when it arrives in these sort of absorb states of meditation. That makes it very easy to uh, see your direct experience without a lot of, again, not being clouded by reactivity, being clouded by what you would prefer to see. This breath is sort of boring. I wish I were elsewhere. I thought meditation would give me these great uh, experiences of bliss. This feels like the same breath as last breath, so what? coming into these neutral states and feeling the equanimity that they engender so that you can calm down and then see moment by moment experience what's happening. And then equanimity being part of the seven factors of enlightenment. And I do apologize if this is too many lists and if it's its own complication, but it's the same theme. So again, when I was doing... uh, molecular biophysics when I was younger. We had to do this work in a lab. We had to be able to control the conditions to be able to measure what was going on on the molecular level. And so this, the equanimity factor makes your investigation much more possible because there's a balance there. It's sort of balancing out your instruments so that they can actually take really good, clear measurements of what's going on. So if you really want to see whether a Nietzsche is true or not, not just intellectually, but experientially, you need to balance out your instrument of investigation, which is your own attention. So balancing out your attention allows you to see a Nietzsche, allows you to see Dukkha, allows you to see Anatta, allows you to see cause and effect clearly within your own stream of mind and heart. So you need this balancing factor in order to learn from life. Without this balancing factor and the suspension of your own reactivity, which really comes from your own preferences, I'm reactive due to my preferences of where, how I want things to be. So I need to, for a moment to suspend my preferences so I can have a true connection to whatever is happening moment by moment. Learn from that and then move forward, 
move forward, that sort of the, the wisdom is the understanding from seeing things clearly. And then through seeing things clearly arises this compassion. So I'll give some stories about this. I was once practicing uh, the Brahma Viharas on a silent three-month retreat in Massachusetts. And again, about October, uh, rain started coming. And where I was doing the walking meditation was this black path, this black asphalt path. And the rain would come, soak the soil, the earthworms would would try to find higher ground. The rain would pass, the sun would heat up the black asphalt, and these worms that had just made it out of one crisis would find themselves in a second crisis of frying in the, the sun's heat. So I was doing walking meditation and doing these loving kindness phrases and trying to step over the worms because I didn't want to kill them. And as my heart got more engaged with what I was doing, I, it broke a little bit to see these little worms had just survived drowning. They climbed up onto higher ground. They were depleted from that. And then the sun came out and then, then they passed. And this actually was, was quite, um, I got grief stricken at times because you know being that deep in meditation and being sensitive. So one thing I did is like, okay, if I'm walking these 10 steps back and forth, 20 steps, I'm gonna take the worms and try to put them in safe places uh, and then I'll walk back and forth. So I did that for a little while. And I'd take my, okay, 20 steps. And at the edge of my 20 steps, I could see a worm that wasn't on my path. I knew it was going to die, but I would turn around and wish it well, sorry for that. And I would turn around and come back. And I was like, may all beings be well, may all beings be well, except you poor worm, (laughs) because you're further than my path. And this began to gnaw at me. And I was like, okay, I can see you. So then I would save the worm, but I was like, don't look any further because there might be another one. And I'd do this walking back and forth. But I knew there was another one. And so whenever it rained on this long retreat, I would hear the rain, the rain would pass, and I started to get this sort of nervous joy. It's like, wait, I got to get out there to save the worms. And so I got there and I would save the worms and it became a little bit of an obsession to kind of me, the worms, loving kindness, compassion, <clears throat> and I was doing this back and forth. And then one day it dawned on me so quickly, I almost broke down crying. I was walking back and forth and it suddenly occurred to me, the rain had gone over you know, many, many, many hundreds of square miles. The amount of asphalt under that rain cloud is huge. The amount of worms that would have crawled out to seek safety that are now dying and for a moment, my mind beheld how much death there is in a rainstorm. And because I was practicing loving kindness, I wasn't prepared, I mean, compassion. I wasn't prepared for that much of an awakening around life and death. So it came through earthworms. But it shook me. It absolutely shook me. And I realized there's not, I could start right now running. And I would have to deal with the fact that I couldn't save these worms. <clears throat> so, <laughs> you guys still with me on this? Or are, you, are you already like, okay, just let him finish because <laughs> that's a little much. But, <clears throat> but as I was sort of falling into the grief of this, it was equanimity that actually caught me. And I was like, this has been happening all along. And it actually it caught my free fall. And I just held, this is what it's like 
It is like this. And it kept the grief from just completely wiping me out. And it wasn't a, this is how it is. I wasn't closing down to it. Don't think about this. This is the way it is. Put that on a shelf for somebody else to think about. It actually was opening up to it. And the compassion would have sort of pushed me way out. And it was actually feeling equanimity come in like a, like a powerful giant and hold me to this truth. And the compassion made it important and the equanimity made it possible to behold this. And it was one of the more great awakenings I'd had to life and death come through the contemplation of earthworms dying after a rainstorm. But if it weren't for the equanimity, I would have only been distraught about the life and death process. If it weren't for the compassion, I could probably sit there and be a little bit inured to it. But I saw how beautifully they worked together. And then I had this, you know, this mission, what do I do now? And then you probably have heard that parable of the person who walks along the beach after a storm, throwing the starfish back into the beach. And someone says, you can't save them all. And the person says, I don't have to, I can save this one. And so then I was able to bring it back to, let's see how many I could save without driving myself crazy. And I got a little more sane about it, (laughs) in case you were worried. But that's just one arc of how uh, equanimity works with compassion beautifully. And almost how they need each other to have a fully ripe, tender, awakened heart to uh, the truth of life and death. That same theme was discovered when I was working in the hospice unit. So there is a truth that if you're born, as far as we know, you'll have to face the aging and dying process. Some people don't even get the opportunity to age. To try to behold that is overwhelming. So you come to equanimity with it. You mature your relationship to this truth through a combination of compassion and equanimity until you can hold it. And then you can be of service. So being on the hospice ward, first couple of months there, I was not that great at the service there because mostly what I had was reactivity and trying to override it so I could be of service. Yet as time went on and I matured my relationship to this process, I became less reactive, not apathetic, actually much more tender in my relationship to the people on the hospice ward and see that some of them would come to the hospice ward and actually die. Some people would come to the hospice ward, get healed and get better. And we just didn't know. So living in that non-knowing around a very intense topic, but having matured my relationship to this process, to where I was uh, very intimate without being reactive. I had a friend who came with me to Burma once, and she was also sort of an activist. And I worked at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for a number of years as an activist. Um, And I had this 
little moniker in the back of my mind that they're activists and reactivists. <laughs> and reactivists might actually get more done in a day because of a certain charge of how reactive they are towards what they're trying to work on. But there's a certain toxicity to the reactivity that has them and others around them burn out. So she was a borderline reactivist and she came with me to Burma and she'd heard all the bad stories about the government and the poverty and so she already was loaded to kind of see how bad things were. And I'd been there and I I had already had a relationship to Burma. I can see it for what it is. So she got there, she tried to do a number of things. She was a journalist, she tried to take pictures, she had her camera confiscated, she bought food for her village, gave it to them, but didn't feel in their response that they were that appreciative and that, that kind of tied her up a little bit. And then on her way out she said, I could never come back to this country, it's just too heartbreaking. Um, so that was her tour through. She did a number of things, but for the most part, I don't think she'll ever go back there. I've spent time in Burma, and I've fallen in love with Burma. I've fallen in love with the Burmese people. And for a while, I didn't know what to do, but I stayed in the relationship with them. And I discovered that there's a school that I love very much in Mandalay, run by these, um, uh, these incredible brother monks, uh, two older monks, and there's sort of gentle humor and presence and chaos around them. Um, makes the school really fun to be connected to. So I love this school. And I happen to know a lot of young people that are looking to do something with their lives. And so I started connecting the young people I know in America with this school in Burma. And through those relationships, things are growing. It's interesting. I don't know where it's going to go. But it's not being so reactive that I burn out and therefore can't stay in contact with some of the suffering in Burma. I stay in contact with it, even when there's no solution, to see what might come out of that. And sort of embracing the dukkha in Burma, as opposed to never going back. The last thing I'll say, again, this comes from my time at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. is that if you want to tackle a really big problem in your family, uh, in your own self-emotional pattern maybe, or something going on for you personally in your family, or something as vast as the chaos of the world, you need to have equanimity hold you together while you stay in contact with something that overwhelming. So just taking one theme that we worked on at this Peace Fellowship, let's say something like racism. As much suffering as it's caused, just to hate it is not enough. You can't actually solve it without understanding it. And in understanding racism, you have to be in contact with it. And you can't go in for a quick fix because you don't like it. You actually have to stay connected to it see where it comes from, start seeing that you actually have some of the patterns in yourself and work on it, see it in others, see how hard it is, and stay in contact with it. 
So the compassion has you lean in and be in contact, but it's the equanimity that has you deepen your relationship to where they're suffering. You also need to know how to take a break. And this is where, in order to be balanced in the middle, embracing dukkha is very powerful. Knowing the suffering that's out there, but also having as much contact to joy and to rest. And this is where the ease of meditation, the calm of meditation can be very helpful, as is the love of good friends. You need to have a healthy side out here. If you're only drawn to the suffering of the world, there's a sort of a swamping and a burnout there. You also need to have the pole extended this far out into joy. And look at your pattern. If you're always seeking the joy side, you probably are somewhat avoiding suffering. If you're noble and always deep in the suffering, you might not be able to contact enough joy to to hold that well. And so you teeter back and forth until you find you can actually walk down this tightrope of the present moment, which becomes more and more, like if you've seen some of these uh, circus acrobats, acrobats, they can dance on the wire. They can dance on the wire because they have this balance. So that's the last image I'd like to leave you with. So for that, I'd like to open up to any questions or reflections you have on this topic. And is there somebody willing to uh, walk the microphone around? Stretch your legs a little bit. And there's a question back there down the mid midline. There you go. Temple, when you talk about equanimity, I <clears throat> And you're, you're, for example, with your sister, um, in my own work with very ill children, kind of look at it not so much as equanimity, but kind of um, doing what I can and then letting go of outcome. Like what you're describing to me sounds like, and I may be wrong, but it sounds like attachment to an outcome having to be a certain way. And the way I look at that is I do the best I can. I can always do better, but I do the best I can. And to be attached to outcome after you've done your best is kind of a form of neurosis, like to be a bit neurotic, because in fact, you do what you can, and then, you know, you can pray for no rain, but if it's raining, it's raining. So if the child's going to not do well, if your sister's not going to go for treatment, you set the conditions as best you can. And then to be upset or angry, which I've had spent plenty of time myself, means that I'm partly still attached to outcome, I think. So for me, that's not really what equanimity is. I don't really know what it is, but to me it's more attachment to outcome. For me, the difference between apathy and equanimity is clearer, I think. To me, apathy is rejecting or pushing away the world. And equanimity is accepting the world. I see them as quite different things. I see it as actually a reverse grasping apathy. It's no, I don't care. uh, Versus um, equanimity, which is 
this is this is the way it is, as opposed to I don't care. So I don't know what you some thoughts on that, perhaps, or I'm, I'm not sure if I can get to the the bottom of your observation there, but I don't see a, I don't see a difference. And so for me, when there is equanimity, I tend to be not so attached to outcomes, and it's often the it's compassion but not, not a fully awake compassion that starts to feel the pain and wish that it were different. And that might, without me knowing it, get me attached to an outcome. And it's actually the equanimity practice that allows me to see things for what they are and let go of the attachment to outcomes. So I'm not sure if how I was describing it um, had it come across the other way. But I do see that uh, it's through equanimity that allows me to see things clearly enough that I can see the distortion of the attachment to outcome. I can see that I was getting attached, that we had a solution. And because of that, I was getting frustrated when it didn't happen. And that usually meant my equanimity had been lost somewhere in the way because I had gotten embroiled in an outcome and wanting it and being attached to it. And usually I can't accept things as they are that has me kind of attached to outcomes. So I, I, tend to cra- I tend not to crave other realities as much when I have a healthy sense of equanimity. So I, I'm, as you described it, is in accord with my own understanding. So I might have misspoke earlier. And just for the record, it's not my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so in case anybody ever hears this and thinks she's a heroin addict, it's not my sister. Mm-hmm. Anybody else here? I just want to go in a little more deeply to the question that he asked. Hmm. If you really care so, so deeply about the outcome, say something, um, maybe even that you don't have control over, but you care about the planet and you see something terrible is happening to the planet. I can't quite get over that barrier between my caring for the outcome and accepting with equanimity that this is how things are. I'm a little bit stuck with that. Well, I don't think we have equanimity for the future. And I think we have equanimity for the way things are and hope to discover equanimity along the way. But I learned this when I was working in the shelter for homeless teenagers, where a kid would come in and we'd make a whole case plan for them. They would almost complete it, and then something would happen, and they would fall short of it. The whole thing would fall apart, and they would wind out almost where they started. And we'd be devastated. And I was doing my first meditation retreats at that time, I started realizing, oh, I'd gotten attached to an outcome. So then I tried no attachment to any outcome. And I found I couldn't really make a good case plan. There's something like, we, we need to ha- try to head somewhere, but it's the attachment of where we're going. And maybe try to force an outcome that ended up me- having me be misaligned with the kid. So rather than working as an advocate for that teenager, that teenager was part of the problem in my mind. And so suddenly I was working against them to get them where I wanted them to go. And that was usually the sign that nothing good was going to happen because I was in too much opposition to them. So then it just was a matter of, you know, being 
having an idea of where we're trying to head and holding that carefully, but not tightly, and then being able to see when we were misaligning with reality, this kid cannot live out this plan. Even if it's a good plan, it's not good because it actually is not possible for this kid. And can I let go of the plan and not let go of the kid? And often I'd be attached to the plan, so I would struggle with the, with the teenager, for example. It's funny, this sort of Q&A, there's a hope to sort of like wrap it up nicely and have a bow on it. <clears throat> but I feel there's a story that might actually like put fire in the room. But I have a friend who's doing tireless work on climate change, tireless work, and she's exhausted. And I said to her, you can work as hard as you are, but you know we may not be able to stop this. And she says, I can't even think that way. I cannot even think that way. It's like, okay, but that may be one of the outcomes. You don't have to work any less, but you, it's like, I'm working this hard because I can't imagine that outcome. So a lot of work is coming out of her for this. She is working tirelessly, but she's also... Um, she's getting ground down by this process because she can't even fathom the outcome of the climate change. And the way I have responded to this is I also want to stop the climate change and I want to have an impact on it. But I've worked on it to hold this, this understanding, this large view. This planet, as far as we know, has gone through six major extinctions. Six major times that all the life, nearly all the life, collapsed and new life sprung up. So I don't, when I reflect upon that, there, it's almost my inability to deal with loss that has me unable to see what's happening here and now. I get too reactive. I, I start to hate the people that I think are impeding what could be a solution. And then out of that hatred, they're the, they're the enemy. And as I've watched Nonviolent before, once you demonize the other side, it's very difficult to work with them. It's very difficult to actually find a joint solution. And so you, then you have, to, you have to annihilate the other side to win. And that type of warfare usually makes the other side defend itself and try to get stronger. And so you can get into a sort of an arms race, a power struggle, a power arms race, if that's your strategy. If you don't demonize them, you might be able to dialogue with the people that are rational enough to have dialogue with. And maybe there's a joint solution. That tends to be the more nonviolent ways, hoping for some type of joint solution that comes when you don't engage in hatred of those who have different points of view and maybe oppositional points of view. How do you resolve those so you actually can work for a, a doable solution versus a power struggle? So I'm not sure if that, if that helped or if that touched your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I just glance at the clock, the, um, the hour mark. So I'm going to switch topics, if that's okay. And just, uh, I just want to... Um, make known to you that uh, when I signed up for this retreat to help teach it, um, one, one schedule conflict is that I actually have to teach a day long tomorrow in, uh, back in Oakland, Berkeley area. 
So I have to leave tonight. So I won't be here as the retreat ends tomorrow morning. And for that, um, this is sort of going to be my more closing remarks. And I want to say that I'm very happy to have been here on this week with you all. It was quite an honor to be invited by two people I have immense respect for. And to have been with a, um, a body of yogis who are practicing, asking questions, considering uh, everything that's being taught. Um, so this has been a real honor to be with you this week. And um, I wish you all the very, very best as you practice onward. So I, uh, we, we only uh, managed to find the temple I managed to find temple in June, this June. And I called temple and said, can you teach with us in uh, November? And he looked at me, so possibly I can. <laughs> so very lucky he could, apart from this previous arrangement. So we were very lucky to have temple with us. And Stephen and I are very happy that he took the time to come and help us because I don't know if we could have done it, you know, just the two of us. And he really brought something to it. And so we hope it is the start of a beautiful relationship together. <laughs> so if you want to uh, kind of come and say a few words personally to Temple, so you can say goodbye to him now, then there is about like 10 minutes. You can, you know, do that. And then he has to go, he has to go home. And then we have a bit of a break. Possibly not too much walking meditation outside. And then we finish with the nine o'clock sitting.